أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وبه نستعين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي يا رسول الله وعلى أهل بيتك المدلومين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي مولاي وابن مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا رحمة الله الواسعة ويا باب نجاة الأمة يا غريب يا مذموم كربلا ما خاب من تمسك بكم والأمن من لجأ إليكم مسادتي يا ليتنا يا ليتنا كنا ماكم فنفوز والله فوزا عظيما قال الله العظيم في محكم كتابه الكريم والقول كالحق والأصدق القائلين على لسان موسى رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل لقدة من لساني يفقه قولي واجعل لي وزيرا من أهلي حارون أخي أمنا بالله صدق الله العلي العظيم في جرساء صلوات الله اللهم these verses of the whole Quran that I just began with is one of the du'as and the supplications of Moses. When he's praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before he is tasked with the responsibility to go and visit the, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And in the whole Quran, Pharaoh is seen as the perfect example of everything that represents evil. While in the Qur'an, for those who understand Qur'anic sciences, Musa السلام, is beyond just the historical personality, but he's also a representative of everything that represents virtue. And the most quoted individual, or excuse me, the individual who is most mentioned by name within the whole Qur'an is Musa السلام. And the individual who is mentioned second in terms of the number of times specifically is mentioned within the whole Qur'an, is the Pharaoh Fir'aun. In this particular in these particular verses that I began with, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is quoting the dua or the supplication of Musa when he is getting ready to set off to go and preach toward the Pharaoh and to tell him that look, I am God's prophet and this is what I have been tasked to do. And naturally Musa alayhi salatu wasalam is in that moment where he is about to set off to perform this task that was weighing very heavily on his back and on his shoulders. Thus he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by uttering these words, he calls out, Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yassirli amri. He says, Oh Allah, as I'm about to go and approach Musa alayhi salam, make this task easy for me. Expand for me my chest and allow for my tongue to be eloquent. And oh God, give me someone who's able to be a support to me, someone from my family. Oh Allah, appoint for me my brother Aaron. Harun Akhi. Appoint for me my brother Harun. And when we take a look at these verses of the Quran, in theological circles, they're often described and utilized toward speaking to the importance of successorship within the religion of Islam. 
And specifically, we utilize these verses of the Qur'an as an evidence when we speak toward the authority of the Prophet and the need for him to be in the company of a man like Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali alayhi salatu wasalam. In the idea that the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam, he states that, O oh, Ali, you are to me like Aaron was to Moses, except that there is no Prophet after me. But in our discussion for today, I don't want to reflect upon those verses from this theological frame, but rather again speak to the incredible importance of having a brother or having a friend or having someone by your side when you're tasked with a really important responsibility. Musa السلام, who is God's prophet and who is God's messenger and is amongst the greatest of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even he himself, he asks God to allow for him to be in the company of his brother Harun, of his brother Aaron. In the same way as we mentioned the other night, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes the stress on the burden of the prophetic message sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by giving him the companionship of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam. When he states, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alam nashrah laka sadra? O Rasulullah, did we not expand for you your trust utilizing that same metaphor? وَوَضَعْنَا أَنْكَ And have we not removed that burden from your back? And we did all of that by giving you the company of the commander of the faithful, Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam. That even God's greatest of prophets, they enjoyed being in the company of those who were noble. And they enjoyed being in the company of people who they knew were going to be sincere and loyal to them. They enjoyed being in the company of good friends. And we go ahead and take a look at our traditions within the school of Ahlul Bayt, we have tens of maybe hundreds of traditions that speak to the importance of keeping good company or having a good group of friends to interact with on a day-to-day basis. And the importance of having ties of friendship that are built on utilizing your company to get closer toward that which is most important, and that is seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and not solely seeking this world. There's a hadith from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in which he states that, befriend those who, when they see you, or excuse me, when you see them, you remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Think about your group of friends, right? For one second. When you see them, do they remind you of God or do they remind you of Shaitan? <laughs> do they help you get closer toward God or not? <laughs> and the tradition it continues. And it said, and befriend those individuals who, when you spend time with them, they increase you in your knowledge. And you increase them in their knowledge. That you guys learn from one another. That you discuss things about things that are probably important in your life. Not like the statistics of like Christoph's Przingis and how much realistically he might be an MVP candidate next year, even though he's only going to play like three months of the season. <laughs> That's not going to be really beneficial for you in the long run. 
If you know, you know. Clearly, there's not a lot of Knicks fans in here. <laughs> so the hadith states that the second quality of the friend that you should be looking for is that when you spend time with them, they increase you in your knowledge and you increase them in knowledge. And the third group of friends befriend those individuals who when you spend time with them, you desire to do deeds, you desire to perform deeds that are going to take you and benefit you in the next world, more so than this world. Meaning when you sit with that group of friends, you're not only discussing about things that might be beneficial to you in this world, you're not only talking about money, you're not only talking about investments, you're not only talking about things that are worthless, but rather you're talking about things that you can do to impact the community that you're living in, and the society that you're living in. And utilizing that framework and that building that friendship and interacting with one another to think about projects that are going to be able to like serve humanity, for instance. When are we going to go and volunteer like at the soup kitchen? When are we going to go and like distribute food to the homeless? What are we going to do and distribute? What, what, what are we going to go out in the middle of the winter? What's the date where we're going to go and distribute blankets to all of those who don't have anywhere to sleep because it's really cold outside? We have other traditions from the Prophet ﷺ, for instance, that speak about the importance of having good friends. One of these hadiths, it states that surely that friends, they have one soul divided between several bodies. Other traditions speak to the importance of making sure that we are always in good company because naturally our company, it rubs off on who we are in terms of our personality. And what's really beautiful within the whole of Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nisa, in Surah An-Nisa, like other, like other chapters of the whole of Qur'an, they're very, very legalistic. So when you're reading through a lot of these chapters, when you're reading through a lot of these verses, things might not make a lot of sense unless you really spend time to like reflect on them. And one of the verses within chapter 4 of the whole of Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to the believers about where they can go into people's homes and eat their food. Someone's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why would that even be a verse of the Quran? Back then, remember we're talking like in the 6th century, in the Arabian Peninsula, before the time of the Prophet ﷺ, people were like known as the people of Jahiliyyah. It was the age of ignorance, right? They were really like immoral people. So what they used to do is, they used to just walk into people's homes when they were hungry, right? And they would just like take food from their kitchen, like open up their fridge, like warm things up in the microwave, and they would like make a sandwich and they would like be on their way. And when like the Holy Prophet ﷺ came to like establish a community, like obviously this thing is not acceptable. You can't just walk into other people's homes and take things from there, even if you need something. So, in these verses of the Qur'an, or in this one particular verse in Surah An-Nisa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the believers, He says, Oh, you who believe, don't go to people's homes and take their food. Like, you would think it's obvious right now. He said, but unless you're in their home, and they are amongst a group of these people. He says, for instance, if you're in your parents' home, you don't necessarily need to ask your parents, can I go into the fridge and eat something, right? Unless they've made it very clear, do not eat that food. That's my favorite cake. Don't eat that cake. <laughs> you can go into your brother's home, for instance. When you're in the home of your brother, you don't need to ask him. Again, unless something is stipulated. When you're in your sister's home, you don't need to do so. When you're in your paternal, uncle, uh, paternal uncle's home, when you're, in, when you're in your maternal uncle's home, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about all of those close relatives, that when you're in their home, 
you can eat their food without asking permission, again, unless something is stipulated. And then at the end of this verse, it states, وَالصَّدِيق And your friends. And within the whole Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala differentiates between one who is known as a sahib and one who is known as siddiq. A sahib is often translated as companion. We say that they are the companions of the Holy Prophet They are the companions of Moses. They are the companions of Jesus. They are the companions of Imam al-Husayn And then other times we speak about individuals within the Arabic language by giving them the root word sadaqah. Sad, da, and a. And in this root word in the Arabic language is translated as also, when you want to say that someone is telling the truth, you'd also call him Siddiq. Which is why when the Holy Prophet ﷺ, in those initial 40 years before he proclaimed the message openly, they would call him as Sadiq wal Amin. Right? They would call him the honest and the trustworthy. Imam al-Sadiq is given the title al-Sadiq because he is known to be very trustworthy and honest within his community. And again, going back in the Arabic language, we call sahib someone who you're close with, that you have relationships with, that you talk to, that you might have an interpersonal dealings with them on many different occasions. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily have that really close link, that really close relationship where seemingly everything is open for you. That you can openly engage in conversation about just about anything. That's reserved to someone who is known as Siddiq. And the reason why they're known as Siddiq is because you can trust them with anything that you tell them. Going back to the root word in the Arabic language of where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is coming from. So your close friend, you can go into his kitchen and eat his food, unless again he tells you, do not eat that slice of pizza because I will kill you if you do. Generally, we go ahead and we see that when someone is your friend to that level, you would have that sort of relationship with them. And when we go again and take a look at other verses of the whole Qur'an and traditions of Ahlul Bayt, we find the importance of making sure that your friends are not about how many they are, but in terms of what quality that they are. And being tonight, being the night of the night, of it, beginning the, excuse me, tonight being the night of the fifth of Muharram, whereby we traditionally recall and remember the companions of Imam al-Hussein, but rather I would not call them the companions as much as, as, much as I would call them the friends of Imam al-Hussein, because they have reached that level of status. I thought to reflect upon our discussion in regards toward keeping good company, on three different dimensions. The first dimension is in terms of understanding what type of a friend that we need to be, as discussed within the traditions of Ahlul Bayt. The second dimension of our discussion is in terms of what friends do we need to seek, as Ahlul Bayt have discussed. And thirdly, what are the qualities and the characteristics of the friends of Sayyid al-Shuhada, Abi Abdullah al-Husayn, I can ask you to recite one. So to go toward our first discussion, what type of friend do we need to be? What type of human being in reality do we need to be? So much of our tradition speaks to the importance of people who have good etiquette. In the prophetic hadith, 
The Holy Prophet وسلم, he states, That I've been sent with one responsibility, and that responsibility is to perfect the etiquette of my, of my community. And in reality, you see that everything that we have in ritual, everything that we have in law, everything that we have in jurisprudence, everything that we have in philosophy, at the end of the day, is to yield us being a people who just have better etiquette, who are a good people. But for some reason, it's incredibly difficult for us to just be good people. It's difficult for us to smile at individuals. It's difficult for us to ask people if they're having a bad day. It's difficult for us to say thank you. It's difficult for us to say I'm sorry, and so on and so forth. And I want to reflect for a couple of moments in regards toward this one hadith from Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, alayhi salatu wasalam, that personifies everything that it means in terms of what we need to perceive to, to being a good human being. In these words of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, alayhi salatu wasalam, as narrated in, in Al-Nahj al-Balagha, he states, خَالِتُ النَّاسِ مُخَالَتَةً إِنْ مِتُّمْ مَعَهَا بَكَوْ عَلَيْكُمْ وَإِنْ إِشْتُمْ حَنَّوْ إِلَيْكُمْ Yeah, it's a good one. No, it's not. You can leave it. It's entertainment. Nobody's listening to me anyway. It's joking. You guys are all very attentive. Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, alayhi salam, he states, خَالِتُ النَّاسِ مُخَالَتَةً إِنْ مِتُّمْ مَعَهَا بَكَوْ عَلَيْكُمْ he states in his famous line that live amongst, the, live amongst your people that if God forbid you were to die, they would weep over you. You just understand the power of the words of the commander of the faithful, Imam Ali He gives us a roadmap in terms of how we should live life in only two sentences, or only, in only two phrases. The first one he states that live life to the extent that if you were to die, that people would weep over you. Not they would weep of joy when you die, but rather that they would weep over you, they'd feel so bad that you're no longer within their company. And I'll say this out of my own commentary. I don't mean your family only. Your family is going to weep over you, whether you're a good person, whether you're a bad person, because they're going to try to take out the goods. <coughs> But what impact do we make on other people? To the extent that if you were no longer to be in your workplace, you were to no longer be in your social circles, then not only would they feel bad, but that they would grieve over you, that they would have tears come down from their eyes, and literally they would cry for you, wondering what life would be like if you were there with them. This tradition of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen is like really, really beautiful on so many different levels. If you understand the Arabic language, it's even more beautiful. The words that Imam Ali uses, he states, The word or is the same verb that is used when you mix together a lot of ingredients in order to like make a salad or something like that. You put like tomatoes, you put onions, you put lettuce, you put carrots. Actually, you don't put tomatoes because tomatoes are haram. <laughs> you put all of the other good vegetables except for tomatoes in that salad. You mix it all together. That's what this verb means. That's what this word means. 
And when you take a look at how we can understand that, we see that when Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen is saying that mix yourself amongst people, or live amongst people to the extent that if you were to die, they were to weep over you, it means that you're also mixing and engaging with people on all different levels. Not only people who are your age, for instance. That you respect the elder and you respect those who are younger than you. And you make people want to be in your company. And that brings us to the next part of the tradition. But before I get into that, just one moment. What made the personalities of Ahlul Bayt, wasalam, so lovable to their communities is that they were just lovable personalities. Everybody wanted to be with them. Everybody wanted to talk to them. They wanted to sit with them. They wanted to engage in conversation with them. I gave you the example of that old man when he came to visit the Prophet after prayers and he couldn't stop looking at him. It wasn't only the beauty of the face of the Prophet but it's about the character and the heart of the Prophet. The Imams of Ahlul Bayt they would sit on the floor with people even though they were God's representatives on earth, and people would go to them and be like, you're the imam. Why are you like acting like a normal person? It's like, I am a normal person. A lot of times, people, they fail to understand what it means to be a leader. A leader seemingly is someone who stands above everyone else and speaks to them and gives everyone instruction. Ahlul Bayt, the Prophet, breaks down the entire hierarchy. He doesn't try to be different than everyone. He tries to explain to everyone exactly why he's similar to them. There's no hierarchy. Today, in like religious communities, we create this hierarchy. Sheikh, and it's the people. People can't talk to the Sheikh. Sheikh can't make jokes. No, I'm a pretty funny guy, man. <laughs> because there's a picture drawn of how someone in a leadership position should be. For you go and you took, take a look at the life of the Prophet I mentioned the other day that one of the biggest criticisms of the Prophet was that he would listen to people so much. Amongst the other criticisms of the Prophet you know what was what? <coughs> that he walks in the marketplace and he eats. He eats in front of us. He doesn't go to a room, lock himself in an office and then eat so no one else sees him. He doesn't go and shop elsewhere away from the community so nobody else sees him. He doesn't act holier than thou. He doesn't act like he's better than anyone else. The Prophet ﷺ was so loved. And of course, people who wanted to not believe in him, they found every excuse why to criticize him. But the Prophet ﷺ, he would engage with his people. Going back to the words of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen ﷺ, he says, خَالِتُ nas مُخَالَتَةً that live life amongst your people, that if you were to die, that they would weep over you. And that when you are alive, they really desire and they crave to be in your company. They always want to be with you. If you get a lot of text messages, a lot of WhatsApp messages, even if they're forwards on the family groups that none of us like, those big family groups that you put on mute. That means you're loved, and that means that people crave your company. And if people always want to talk to you, 
and the people always want to engage in conversation with you, and they're interested in hearing your stories, or even more importantly, they're interested in telling you their stories, even though you not, might not be so interested in hearing those stories, they crave your company. And Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, again, is giving us a roadmap in terms of how we are to live life. In two phrases. If you die, ask yourself the question, are people going to cry for me? And when I'm alive, do people like to be around me? Or do they try to avoid me all the time? And it might be the people that is circling around you that is avoiding you, and that might be their loss. But try to understand that we want to have a characteristic and a personality that even if we don't say that many words, even if we're shocked, even if we're not so engaging in sort of the anecdotes that we tell, that just your presence, if you are not there, that's felt. These words of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen are to be etched within our hearts and within our souls and within our beings. Because it explains to us exactly how we are to be amongst people. And details we find within traditions, just going back toward being a good person, I don't need to give you a lecture in terms of how exactly to do that. But to understand that if I'm fulfilling these two phrases of the commander of the faithful, then at the very least I have something to offer to those around me. That brings me then toward the second phase of my discussion. That's in regards toward what sort of friends do we need to be seeking as taught to us by our traditions? It is said that one day there was a man who came to Imam As-Sadaq alayhi salatu wasalam. Allah And the Imam alayhi salam, after engaging him in some like brief conversation, he asked him, he said, the Imam alayhi salam asked him, he said, hey, like, where is our friend? I don't know, X, whatever his name was. He said, Yabna Rasulullah, I haven't, I haven't seen him in a really long time. He said, probably been a couple of years, we're like lost touch, so on and so forth. I got busy working, he got busy working, so on and so forth. And the Imam Ali Salam says, do you not ask about him? Like, don't you ask your friends' friends? Don't you ask your family? Don't you ask the people in this community? And the man, he said, Oh, grandson of the Prophet, I've been really, really busy. I haven't had the time to really go out and find out how he's doing. And Imam Sadiq alayhi salatu wasalam, he responded to him with this line, which is really powerful. He said, you should ask about him because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask you about your relationship with him on the Day of Judgment. Meaning that if you don't ask about him, then God's going to ask, why weren't you taking care of him? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees every single one of the relationships that we engage in with companions, with friends, with co-workers, with people who live around us, with our neighbors, as much as our family members. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be vigilant over us in terms of how we deal with people. And to make sure that when you have someone that you've built a relationship with, that again you're just doing the small things about reaching out to them once in a while. When you haven't seen someone come to the program since the first day, and they were sitting next to you the first day, and I told you all in my announcement, then make sure you know the person who was sitting next to you the first day. 
so that maybe you go back to them and say, how come you haven't shown up? I know the lecture is not that engaging, right? But come here because the food is really good. <laughs> but to do small things like reaching out to individuals is just part of what we need to be as a community. And then when we go toward the traditions of Ahlul Bayt in detail in regards toward finding what qualities that we need to find when we are looking for friends, we look toward this tradition from, again, Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen as narrated in Nahj al-Balagha as well, saying number 33. Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen he states, لا يكون صديق صديقا حتى يحفظ أخاه في ثلاث he said that a friend cannot be a friend unless he protects you, unless he or she protects you in three different circumstances. And then the Imam Ali Salam he goes through what those three are. Number one, he states, fi nakbatihi wa fi ghaybatihi wa inda That the first <coughs> quality of a friend that you should be seeking is someone who protects you when you're in his presence or when you're in her presence. Meaning that when someone is with you, not only are you going to protect their dignity, which literally you offer them protection. And it don't mean physical protection like you give them a home, but you offer them the counsel that if they want to speak to you and they want to engage with you and they want to tell you about their problems, you don't tell them, I got too much time, I don't have too much time, I got too many other things going on, but rather you take the time to listen. And you take the time to be present. In the same way that we want to be present in our prayers when we're worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the same way that we want to be present when we're listening to a gathering, when we're listening to a program, we're listening to a lecture like this one. In the same way that you want to be present in the workplace, you need to be present when you're with people. And in specific, a higher level of presence with friends. To protect them, to protect their words, when they tell you a secret, you don't go give that out to everyone. When they tell you about what challenge them, a difficulty that they're going through, they assume that you're not going to tell anyone, so don't tell anyone. To do really small things, but Imam Ali is telling us that when you are looking for a friend, make sure that your friend is at the very least protecting you in regards to this. And then he continues and he states, and that make sure that you have a friend who, when you are not there, when you're not physically present, that they also protect you. That the minute that you leave, like that circle, they don't go and they tell everyone about like how you're such a terrible person. Or how you know you just told them about your challenges and they go and they tell everybody else. Rather, again, they protect you, and they protect your words, and they protect your dignity, and they protect, and they protect your sanctity. And then, thirdly, and most importantly, the Imam Ali he states, And that, make sure that you have a friend who is really your friend, and who is able to protect you, again, in your words, in your life, in your dignity, so on and so forth, after you pass away. Someone who is ready to support you and make du'a for you and to stand by you and again to weep over you and to crave your company, going back to the words of the commander of the faithful, Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, Someone says, like, that's great, like, I already have, like, really good friends. And they, like, do all of those sorts of things. 
But if they're doing those things, but they're not reminding you of God, if they're doing all of those things, but they're not taking you and motivating you to perform good deeds outside of those ones that you already do, if they're doing all of those things, but when you're sitting in their gathering, rather they are, you know, not increasing in your knowledge, but rather like dropping your IQ, right? Then maybe you need to go out and seek someone who is able to offer you something more. Because being a friend or having a friend is not so easy. When you go out and take a look at and again, being a friend, not a companion, but siddiq, siddiqan, the way that the Prophet and the way that the Imams والسلام, speak to it. When you go toward the history of our tradition, you see so many of the Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they didn't really have individuals who were so close to them. And they struggled to find individuals who were always standing there by their side. You see the Prophet وسلم, he has Amir al-Mu'mineen When you go toward Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen you see that he has individuals like Kumar ibn Ziyad. When you go toward Imam al-Hasan you see that when he went to go and sign that treaty with Muawiyah on that day, he didn't have that many people to support him. Which is why he had to sign the treaty. He was not able to engage in that, in that revolution in the way that he had desired. When you go toward Karbara, Imam al-Hussein is the grandson of God's prophet. He only has 70 people around him. We could have called his friends. We could have called his supporters. We could have called people who are loyal to him. And we're not Hussein ibn Ali. We don't have that sort of charisma. We don't have that same lineage. So what's it going to take for us to be able to create that network and system of friends? But I will say, more importantly than understanding that notion, it's about what we are doing to come to the support of people who are looking for help, who are looking for friends, who are looking for support. I said this uh, in my announcements, and now I know there's a lot more people here, and I know that it's being recorded as well. If after this program, you go to the room where we're eating dinner, and there's somebody sitting alone, you should not let them sit alone. You should go and sit next to them and ask them how they're doing. But don't ask them how they're doing to the extent where they get like really emotional and they don't want you to be sitting next to them and don't embarrass them the fact that they're sitting alone. But just be nice and say, do you need any food? Can I get you anything? Why are you sitting alone? Do you want me to sit with you? If you see that they might want speak to somebody. Then again, I'll say it again, if you have been sitting in these programs for the last five nights, and you've been seeing generally 70% of the people who are attending night to night, 60% of the people are the same individuals, then go to them and say, I've been seeing you the last five nights, but I didn't catch your name. In fact, I've been sitting next to you for two hours every single night, and I didn't even say hello to you. I'm sorry. And then today's the weekend, so there are people who are coming from work or people coming from home who have not been to these programs. And that when you see them next to you, you should say, is this your first time here? Is there anything that I can do to help you? And don't say it exactly the way that I'm telling you, because then they're going to know that you're just copying my language. And say it in your own words. And say it with compassion. And say it with care. And say it because you actually love 
to do that and be a good human being, and that you actually love your brother, and that you actually love your sister, and that you actually want to be in their company. Because what we have going on over here is not, again, solely a means for us to grieve and weep individually, but there's a communal aspect to it, and you cannot divorce that reality from these majalis. In the same way you cannot divorce that reality from congregational prayers. In the same way that you cannot divorce that reality from performing the Hajj pilgrimage. You have to do it with people, whether you like people or not. I know sometimes people suck. Right? Everyone's nodding their head to that. <laughs> but sometimes they're not so bad, especially if you find other people who agree with you on the fact that sometimes people are not so nice. And probably we can agree on that in a lot of different phases, but also we have to look within ourselves. How can we always feel that everyone else around us is bad? Do I have something bad in me that's making me say that? So we need to go back and understand what the meaning of community is established, the meaning of friendship as defined by the Holy Prophet and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt at the end of the day really means. And that brings me then to the last phase of my discussion, inshallah. The last phase of my discussion, the last dimension, in regards toward reflecting a little bit on the companions or the qualities or the characteristics of the friends and the companions of Imam al-Hussein, alayhi salatu Tonight, again, as I mentioned before, is the night of the fifth of the month of Muharram. And traditionally, across communities all across the world, we utilize this night to recollect the tragedy of amongst the greatest of companions that we ever see in human history. And those are the companions and the supporters and the friends of the grandson of God's prophet, Al-Hussein ibn Ali ibn al Talib, who he himself states, Inni la a'lam ashabi awfa wa khayran min that surely I do not know of any companions who are more loyal and who are better than my companions. It's incredibly difficult for us to understand what it means for a hundred people or so to stand in front of 30,000. Literally, not metaphorically, literally, a hundred people standing in front of 30,000 individuals who are ready to shed their blood and to allow for their children to be orphaned and their women to be widowed within a matter of hours. Yet when Imam al-Hussein he turned around to his companions and he said that they do not want to kill anyone other than me. So why don't you all go, go back to your families, go back to your communities. You've been a good friend of mine so far. Just, you've done your job. As we know that when the Imam salam told them that, and of course we'll get into more details about it on the night of Ashura, they all looked straight into the eyes of Aba Abdullah al-Hussain and they said, O grandson of God's prophet, you told us what you had to tell us, but we're not going and if we have to die for you, then we'll die for you. And they begin one by one to utter their famous lines. Zuhair ibn Qayyim, 
he comes and he stands in front of Imam Hussein and he says, Oh Aba Abdullah, even if I were to go out into battle and they were to and I was to fight and they were to kill me and God was to resurrect me and I was to die again for a thousand times I would do it for you, O oh Aba Abdullah. And Muslim bin Absajah, he comes and he says, Oh Aba Abdullah, that even if they took my body and they scattered it all across the plains of Karbala, I would do it for you, Abba Abdullah. One by one, the old and the young, the noble and the slave, one by one they would go toward Imam Hussein Hussain and they would proclaim their loyalty to him. The companions of Imam Hussein Hussain they demonstrate everything in terms of what it means to be a loyal companion. They demonstrate everything in terms of what it means to be not only a friend, but someone who knew the position of their imam. And when you go and you take a look at the lives of those personalities, and they all had different baggage. They all had different ups and downs in the course of their lives. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they were ready to be next to Abi Abdullah al-Hussein alayhi salatu And what allowed for them to do that was four specific qualities that I'm just going to touch on really, really quickly, each one of them. The first quality of the companions of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salatu was that they knew their Lord. Like I said before, utilize friends, utilize companions as a means to get closer toward God. At the, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And every single one of those, they knew their creator. As I mentioned yesterday, Sa'id ibn Abdullah al-Hanafi, who would stand and take the arrows while the Imam was in prayers. I mentioned the name of another companion whose name is Abu Fama al-Sa'idi. As I mentioned, arrows were flying in the middle of the battlefield. Half of the companions of Hussein were already dead. And he comes toward Imam al-Hussein and he said, Oh, Abu Abdullah, Look up at the sun. I think it's the time for prayers. Which one of us would think about prayers in the middle of war? In the middle of dead bodies scattered all around you? None of us would think like that. He said, oh, Abba Abdullah, before I die, I would have no greater honor than to pray prayers behind you. Abu Fulama Sa'idi, he was filled with arrows. And he passes away right when he finishes his prayers. And Imam Hussain tells him, Anta alami fil jannah. You will enter into paradise before me. Because he died before Imam Hussain. On the night of Ashura, as again we're going to talk a little bit more about in a couple of nights, all of those companions of Imam Hussain, they enjoyed that last night, that night of Ashura, by spending it in God's worship by spending it in his obedience, by praying the night prayer, by reciting Qur'an, by making dua, that one companion whose name was Burair, as we all know, or many of us may have heard, this companion, he had a really difficult life, he had so many unique challenges in his life, filled with trials and tribulations. But on the night of Ashura, he was obeying and worshipping his Lord, he was in a state of contentment and happiness and smiling. And they went toward him and they said, Oh, Burr, your entire life, we've never seen you so happy. 
And he said, I'm happy because I know that tomorrow I'm going to be at the service of my master. The first quality of the companions of the Imam السلام, was they knew their Lord. They knew God. The second quality which allowed for them to reach that length and reach that extent was their intense love. I don't just mean you love Imam al-Husayn I don't just mean you love Prophet Muhammad and his family, but you love them intensely. And I don't know another word for that. In the hadith states, in al-Husayn, حَرَارَةً فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لَا تَبْرُدُ أَبَدًا That surely in the killing of Hussein السلام, there's going to be a fire, there's going to be a burning sensation in the heart of the believer to the extent that it will never fade away. That's after the death of Hussein, The son of the daughter of God's prophets. And when you see the intense love that those companions of Imam Hussain had, it's perfectly personified by that, main, by, by, by that man by the name of Abbas ibn Sharib. Abbas was a really old man. He was a companion of Imam Ali in the Battle of Safin. And according to historical reports, he was so old. And he had so much so many wrinkles on his body, and he had so much like loose skin that when he was riding on the horse or when he was running in the middle of the battlefield, like his skin would overlap his eyes. So one of the reports states that he takes like a piece of cloth and he ties it around just so he could see clearly. And he goes to the middle of the battlefield, he takes out his sword, and he says, which one of you is going to fight me for I'm here to defend the sun of the daughter of God's prophet. And they say, Oh, Abbas, you're an old man. We can't fight you. <coughs> so Abbas said, If you're not going to fight me, then I'm going to fight you. And he tries to go and he tries to fight. And they realize that he's coming in with such intensity. And they realize that he's coming in with this incredible fervor toward being at the support of Imam Hussein. And many of them, they get really scared. They said, He's serious. So he stood in the middle of the battlefield and he takes off his helmet and he takes off his armor and he takes off his shirt and he begins to run toward the middle of the army contingency of Umar bin Saad and one of them called out Oh Abbas, what are you doing? Have you gone crazy? He says, Naam hubban Hussein ajimani. Yes, I've gone crazy. I've gone crazy with the love of Hussein. Until he fought, until he was killed. The third quality of these companions of Imam al-Hussein again was their loyalty. Their incredible loyalty toward Sayyid Shabab al-Jannah. One man he approached Imam al-Hussein on the night of Ashura and he said, Ya Ibn Rasulullah, my son he was trying to make his way toward getting to Kufa, but he got captured by Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. What had happened was that Kufa, which is not so far from Karbala, for those of you who have been for Ziyara, you know that Kufa is nearby to Najaf, and that the drive, for instance, for us these days is about an hour. 
Kufa had become completely locked down by Ubaidullah bin Ziyad, so none of the Shia of Hussein could have left Kufa so they could have come to Karbala. He says, Oh Aba Abdullah, that my son was trying to make his way to come here, but I just received news that he got captured. Imam Hussein he embraces his friend. He says, I'm so sorry. He says, How about you do this? Take this cloak. He took this Aba that he was wearing, similar to the one that I'm wearing. He took it and he gave it to this man. And he said, go and take this toward the outskirts of Kufa. Tell them that this cloak is the cloak that the Prophet of God used to wear, and I'm wearing it right now. Go and sell it, or go and tell them that if they want it, they can have it, but just to release your son. He said, someone is bound to respect it and give it to you. This anecdote is really incredible on so many different levels. Number one, people respect the cloak of the Prophet of God but they didn't respect the son of God's prophet. But more importantly, for the point that we're trying to make, he looks toward Abba Abdullah, he says, Oh, Imam Hussein, I wasn't telling you, I wasn't telling you so that you're giving me an out. I just wanted to tell you so that you can make du'a for him. I wasn't telling you about what happened to my son so you can let me go back and save him. I'm ready to give my life for you. Can you imagine the scene? You know that your child is in really in incredible distress. That his life is threatened. What are you going to do? He tells Imam Hussain, I'm with you, Allah. Loyalty. And fourthly and finally, individuals who trusted in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They weren't concerned with what is going to happen tomorrow. They weren't concerned with their, with their lives back home. The only thing that concerned them was God's message. And that message is personified in Abi Abdullah and Hussein. And one by one, those companions of Abu Abdullah, they went out and they gave their lives. For Sayyid Shabab Ahl Jannah. For Abu Abdullah and Hussein. But tonight in specific, I want to recollect the tragedy of one of those men. A man who has such a unique station, a man who has such a unique status. A man, if you've been to the city of Karbara, you know that he has his own location where he is buried. That's not a coincidence. A man who epitomizes all of loyalty. A man who epitomizes all of love. A man who epitomizes all of God's knowledge of the knowledge that he has within his own heart. And that is Habib ibn Malahar al-Asadi. Habib ibn Malahar is a man of incredible repute. A man who was a really close confidant of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen and by extension, Imam al-Hussein When you go toward Karbala and you enter into the shrine of Imam al-Hussein may Allah all give us that incredible blessing to be in the proximity of our master Imam Hussein in Karbala, when you walk into that shrine, before you walk into the grave and, and, and send your salutations upon Imam Hussein, you look toward the left and you see the grave of Habib ibn Madahar al-Asadi. And when you're exiting, you have to look toward the right and give your last salutation to him again, because he's the door to get to Hussein. And he is amongst those who, when we recite Ziyarat al Warif, we say, Assalamu alaikum, Ya Ansar Abi Abdullah. Assalamu alaikum, Ya Awliya Allahi wa Ahibbah. 
Peace be upon the friends of God and his beloveds. Habib ibn Malahar is the leader of the friends and the beloveds of God. And the leader of the companions of Imam al-Hussein. And he was tasked with one important responsibility on the day of Ashura. And that was to command the left wing of the army of Imam al-Hussein. The Imam has three commanders. In the center of the battle, the center of the, of the army was Abu al Abbas and his flying bearer. On the right wing of the army was Zuhair ibn al-Qayn, and on the left wing of the army is Habib ibn Madahir al-Nasati. But when Imam al-Hussein he was on the way toward approaching the city of Karbala, he begins to realize that he needs more support. And that he doesn't need any sort of support, but what he really needs is loyal support. And who is more loyal than his beloved friend Habib? But as I mentioned before, the city of Kufa was on lockdown. Literally, you were unable to enter and you were unable to exit unless you escaped. And it is said that on those first days of Muharram, Habib ibn Mawahar, he receives a letter that was sent by one of the messengers of Imam al-Hussein while he was sitting down at home, while he was eating his breakfast. And he opened up that letter after that messenger had come by. And he begins to read it. And then he closes it back up. And he places it on his forehead. And he kisses it. And then he begins to cry. And his wife comes toward him and says, Oh, Habib, what news have you just received? Did something happen? He said, No, nothing happened. But I received a letter from Hussein ibn Ali, who was asking me to come toward the city of Karbala to come and offer my support to him. At this moment, his wife said, Oh, Habib, what are you waiting for? They said that a few moments later, he goes to his servant. And he says, Oh, my servant, as we know, the city of Kufa, it's very difficult to leave. I want you to go in the middle of the night when the security is less. Take my horse to the outskirts of the city of Kufa and wait for there and until I arrive. If for whatever reason I get captured and I don't make it, you are free. You are no longer my slave. It is said that that servant, he sets out and he makes that journey. And Habib ibn Mawahir is preparing to leave his home so he can make his way toward Karbala. It is said that in the middle of the night, he is traveling through the desert. And as he's approaching the outskirts of the city of Kufa, where he told his servant that he was going to meet him, he heard the servant telling the horse, saying, Oh horse, that I swear to God that if my master does not come, then I will ride you myself, and I will go toward Karbala, and I will give my own life for Abba Abdullah. At that moment, Habib al-Malahi approaches behind the servant, and he places his hand behind the shoulder, and he said, Don't worry, oh my brother, you are free to go home. He said, Oh Habib, he said, I was looking for the honor of allowing for myself to be sacrificed for Hussein ibn Ali. And it is said that at that moment they both got on and they both proceeded and they made their way to Karbala. And one historical report it mentions that Imam al-Hussein that from the day that he arrived in the city of Karbala on the 2nd of Muharram until the moment that he was martyred, not for one second did he smile except the moment when Habib ibn Mawahir, his dear friend, arrived on the place of Karbala. 
And I want you to understand that Imam al-Hussein has been bearing all of this emotion. How is he going to tell his son about his difficulties? How is he going to tell his brother? How is he going to tell his, his, his wife? How is he going to tell his sister Zainab? It's so difficult for him to let out his emotion. But the narration states that when he saw Habib ibn Mabahar al-Asadi, he began to have this really bright smile on his face. He embraced him, he hugged him, he said, Oh Habib, thank you for joining us. He said, come with me, I have your armor ready, I have your flag ready, I have everything ready for you. It is said that as he is approaching the tents, all of the family members, the companions of Imam al-Hussein they all come and they embrace Habib ibn Mabahir. They hug him and they kiss him and they say, Oh, welcome Habib, we've been waiting for you, we've been looking for you. At this moment it is said that Lady Zainab she calls Imam al-Hussein. And she says, Oh, Aba Abdullah, what is all of the commotion taking place outside of the tent? Imam al-Hussein says, Oh my dear sister Zainab, know that Habib has arrived and is here to help us and to support us. At this moment, you know what happens? It is said that Imam al-Lady Zainab she tells Aba Abdullah, she says, Go and send my salam to Habib ibn Mabahar. The narration states that at this moment, Imam al-Hussein he goes toward his friend Habib. And he says, Oh Habib, my sister Zainab, she sends her salam on you. At this moment it is said, and he takes off his turban, he places it on the ground, he picks up the sand from Kabra, he places it on his head, and he says, Man ana hatta tusallim alayhi Zainab. He said, Who am I that Zainab, the daughter of God's Prophet, sends her salutation upon me? Then it is said that on the day of Ashura, Habib ibn Mabahir al-Asadi, he goes out and he fights valiantly, he kills 62 people. Until that moment when someone comes and strikes him on top of his head, he falls down from his horse calling out, As-salamu alayka ya Aba Abdullah. Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam rushes toward him, he consoles him, he allows for him to take his final breaths. He embraces him, he closes his eyes, he tells him, Oh Habib, you are going to be with my grandfather in paradise. But my dear friends, I don't want to take you to the last moments in the life of Habib. Let me give you this small anecdote. It is said that before Habib ibn Mabahir, when he was asking permission to leave the tent, one of the narrations reports that states that he went to Imam al-Hussein And he said, Oh Aba Abdullah, do you give me permission to go out and fight? And Habib Imam al-Hussein says, no I don't. But after some time, finally he does. And then it is said that when Habib was on his way toward going out to the middle of the battlefield, he turned around and his face was filled with tears. And he looked toward Imam al-Hussein. And he said, oh Abba Abdullah, I'm sorry. I forgive me, I'm so overcome by emotion. Imam al-Hussein says, oh Habib, why are you crying right now? Are you remembering the loss of your loved ones? Are you remembering your children? Are you remembering your family? Why do I see you crying right now? He says, right now I'm not worried about any of those things. I'm only worried about you, O Aba Abdullah. Right now every single one of us are going out to support you. But in a few hours when you fall down from your horse, who is going to console you? Who is going to embrace you? Who is going to wipe the blood off of your face? But I ask you, Habib, it wasn't about wiping the blood off the face. It was about removing shimmer from the chest of Hussein. <laughs> we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by these tears and by the grief in our hearts to forgive our sins. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this state to hasten the reappearance of our Imam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove all vice and to remove all darkness from our hearts and from our souls so that we're able to be receptive to the message of Allah Abdullah al-Hussein. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to illuminate his most beautiful qualities, that of justice and of beauty and of patience and of forgiveness and of love. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us the ziyarah of Imam al-Hussain alayhi in this life and the shafa'a in the next life. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahumma ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala ahli baytah tayyibin. Allah alayhi wa sallam. Ya Hussain.